Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, August 30th of 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather for about 45 minutes each week to discuss the gospel lectionaries for the coming Sunday. This Sunday is September 4th. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Of course, for Charles Willard in Minnesota, that's 5.30 a.m. And uh, in podcast, we all shift time zones depending on our own travels. Our little team's working to be faithful to lectionary year C, and that puts us in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday. We hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently after the leadoff person shares some formative questions. And then in this virtual discussion room, we share and encourage and we challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. Charles Willard, up in Minnesota, where it is now 60 degrees, clear. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa, where it's 81 and mostly cloudy. And I'm Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina. I have no idea what the weather is or the temperature outside at all. Uh, so uh, today, uh, I've got the lead role, and we're going to go to Luke 14, 25 through 33. But uh, to help with our listening, uh, let me go ahead and ask the three questions that we're going to work with today. So the first question is uh, for some of the early verses I'm going to read. How do verses 26 and 27 uh about hating, the word hate, hating even life itself, for example, sit inside the Lucan literature about Christ's ministry that includes healing and restoration and unity and love. It's a question of reconciliation versus with the overall ministry of Jesus. The second is, what's your view of the use of the word cost in verses 28 and 29? And I'll, I'll point that out when I get to it in the reading. And then finally, what's the metaphorical power of a delegation set out to ask for terms of peace? And you'll hear that in the reading as well. So I'm going to read Luke 14, 25 through 33. Uh, I'm using the New Revised Standard Version. Now, large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage a war against another king will not sit down and first consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, and while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. And that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to so God. Back, uh, the, the questions that we have, and heads up, Sarah, the first one's coming to you. We've got the basic concept or conflicts of using the word hate. And second, the estimation of cost at the beginning of a project. And finally, the metaphorical power of a delegation being for terms of peace. But, Sarah, let's start with verses 26 and 27. Hating even life itself, for example, 
They sit inside a literature filled with love and ministry and healing and restoration and unity. Uh, so how do we reconcile that or how do we use that in the context of the whole gospel? And hello, my friend, Sarah. How are you doing? Good morning, everybody. And I want to say thank you to my friend, Yvette, who uh, spoke to me about this podcast and sends her greeting to each of you, especially Bill, your voice. Um, when, we're, when thinking about the way Jesus frames this hate, um, I'm noticing that it is set as juxtaposition against loving. And so it seems to be a bipolar perspective. Um, maybe bipolar is not the right word. Um, but I think and I wonder if this is hyperbolic language meant to jar us into awareness. Where does the love we have for Christ and God fall in the priority list of that which we love or those that we love? And does it fuel that love or does it usurp that love if we have a priority list? I guess is the question. Um, The commandment seems to be to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, with all our soul, and to love others as ourselves. But how often um, are we? Do we reorder that priority and neglect this commandment to please others, to sustain power and position, to command authority, and and perhaps even argue about birthright? Um, you know, it, a lot of times people where I grew up would say, "Who whose people are you?" Or what family are you from? Or where does your family hail from? Or or did you grow up here? So there's this sense of ownership and authority that comes with growing up in a particular place. Um, When I moved to Tampa, I obviously not from Tampa, so I I didn't have any fealty or loyalty or sense of entrenchment here like I did where I grew up. So I, I kind of thought about that as well. Um, I, I want to quote an article that Charles shared, Wendell Berry's um, The Way of Ignorance essay that he sent to us. It was written in 2005. And the quote that I, I really liked from that particular essay was, if we take the gospel seriously, we are left in our dire predicament facing an utterly humbling question. How must we live and work so as not to be estranged from God's presence in his work and in all his creatures. The answer, we may say, is given in Jesus' teaching about love, but the answer raises another question that plunges us into the abyss of our own ignorance, which is both human and peculiarly modern. How are we to make that love an economic problem? And I think there lies the indictment. Um, Carolyn J. Sharp uh, from Yale Divinity writes for a working preacher, and she's a professor of Hebrew scriptures, and she says preachers should help their congregations understand that Luke 14, verse 26, is not advocating intense hostility toward Ken and life, but rather is promoting the steadfast, excuse me, steadfast refusal to allow something less valuable to display something more valuable. And I thought about that, and, and quite often we um, we are loyal to our families to such a degree 
that they are given such power over us in our decision-making, how we vote, who we choose to invite into our homes, how we choose to eat. Those things all seem to be nested in how we were raised and who raised us. That may be the other question. Um, there was an anonymous comment to Mark, D. Mark Davis's blog, uh, Left Behind and Loving It. The comment was dated September 21, 2019. And it says, the episode links closely with the banquet invitation in which one of the invited says he cannot come because he's just married. And he cannot come. There is the cannot in this episode as well. In this episode, Jesus invites one to come, as he often does in the calling of the disciples. And seeing that this is an invitation, it softens things a bit, but as it does the radical statement of Jesus about hating family. Families often or offer security, love, identity, as well as obligation, duty, responsibility, and other chains. But ultimately, my family cannot deliver. Ultimately, I inherit only death from them. It's an interesting thought to me. The cross language is also a language of hope because the truth is that God raises up humiliated, the rejected, the abandoned. And Jesus is offering true, not fake, life here. So I thought that was really interesting, that the things we cling to in this life that we might give higher priority to than God are often things that can only give us death. And that was my uh, and you mentioned our friend Charles Willard, so I'll use that as a prompt to go to him next. Charles, your name was mentioned. What are your thoughts on this? I don't have any thoughts right now. I'm empty. Fair enough. Thank you. Bill Hall, what do you think? Uh, thank you, Sarah. And you uh, shared part of what I had noted to say, so I don't need to repeat it, that, uh, that last part about it's not truly, uh, I think it is hyperbole, and it's not about truly hating as the last word, but it has to do with priorities. As I listened to you, Sarah, I thought the question is, who will I most seek to please? Okay, that's one way to frame it. Uh, do I, is my loyalty to family ultimate or or to God, and obviously the answer in Scripture and a faithful ministry is that it's love God with all your heart and, and neighbor. Now, Don, uh, I'm one who always looks up the parallels, and in this week, there's only one in Matthew 10, which is uh, the chapter in which Jesus calls the 12 and sends them out and, and warns them, and here's what strikes me about the parallel between the Luke's version and Matthew. Luke has a good bit more than Matthew. The part of it that is the same in each one, and I don't see a significant difference, has to do with the loyalty to family. Um, that's the part that's the same in both. And if you look at the Luke passage three times, Jesus talks about what will keep us from being a disciple. If you love family, you cannot be my disciple. If you do not pick up the cross, you cannot be my disciple. And then that ending verse, Don, 
that in some ways is more challenging than the family loyalty? If you don't give up all your possessions, you can't be my disciple. Three times in Luke, Jesus says, this will disqualify you from being a disciple. So that kind of repetition, for the first time in my study of this passage, that caught my attention, Don, that Jesus makes clear three times. Um, And again, I'm not going to repeat the point that Sarah has made very well, that it is hyperbole. In the message, Eugene Peterson uh, translates it this way, if I can get my notes back up. Um, He says, simply put, if you are not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you cannot be my disciple. Now, that's a, a paraphrase, but I think that catches what I perceive to be the spirit of this is, again, what is my highest loyalty? Now, this study reminded me of a sermon I heard several decades ago, a recording of a minister preaching on marriage, and he was using as his text Genesis 2:24. therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. <laughs> the title of the sermon was, you've got to leave before you can cleave. And he kept repeating that very dramatically. And he was speaking to what I think is the obvious point. The imagery here is leave, not hate, but I think it's similar, Don. It's, again, what is my priority? To leave a father and mother doesn't mean you, they are out of your life completely, but you can't cling to both. That's an interesting verb. you got to leave before you can cling. Another imagery that came to mind, and I've noted a number of times, that over the years I've worked with hundreds of people in recovery from alcohol or other drug addiction, and Al-Anon is an organization that is for the family members or the friends of the addicted person. And one of their main mantras is what they call the three C's. I did not talk. The it is the other person's addictive behavior. I did not cause it. I cannot control it. I cannot cure it. Al-Anon focuses on folks you can't fix this other person. You, in a sense, you've got to leave them to your to themselves. Of course, support them. And the other dynamic was often when a person genuinely got into recovery, they had to get new friends and sometimes new family. More than once, I had someone come to me in recovery and say, "Bill, I can no longer go." to my family for Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's Eve or New Year, they're drinking drug parties, and they're trying to get me back on booze or drugs. They're, they're trying to draw me back to that. And that's not always true. But, again, what is one's ultimate loyalty? And uh, many commentators note the contrast between this passage and the story in John 19 where on the cross Jesus says, Mother, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Jesus cared for his family. And there are other places of tension where the family's outside and Jesus says, who is my mother and father? Those who do the will of God. So it's, I think it's important that we not to use the language of some commentators. We not overly domesticate this. We not so soften the impact of hate that we miss the point. Um, it is a very challenging question. Uh, Follower of Jesus Christ, what is your ultimate loyalty? Thank you. Sarah, you're, you're talking about usurper, usurpa, usurpation. Whenever I hear that, I also think of a word used in Christian commentary and literature of, of being a pretender. Uh, and, I, and that word just goes through all this. Even if you're, you, you propose to be a builder of a tower, pretender or are you really able to follow through and get the job done? So I would add the word pretender to the word usurper. And then I remember in a lectionary class, Sarah, where you and I were present probably 15 years ago, uh, the class being really divided, not not a heated division, but really divided about whether Jesus really meant it. And I take the side of he really meant it. Um, but meant what? And in that, in a sermon, John Debevoise, who's the senior pastor of Palmasia Presbyterian Church, probably, you know, around 07, uh, was on lectionary as well. That's the fun of using lectionary. People are on lectionary. And he was, I can't quote him, but I made some notes that he was emphasizing that it was a word that could be interpreted as a detachment or a turning away. That you put hatred with that, it's turning away, mm-hmm. setting and then that way it gets practical and all the pieces of this lectionary passage do have a practicality they're accessible to us building things uh, putting things aside even mm. things that are even things that are delicious to us <laughs> you can't eat those uh, and I and I and that helped me too so I take the side of he really 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 meant it but what does he mean by hate and I was adopting the terms turning away or detaching ourselves. And maybe it's with aggression, with decisiveness, with real discipline. And then in the same period of time, Bill Wallace, who taught lectionary class to generations at Amosir Presbyterian Church, in an entirely different discussion, said, remember, and he was thinking about the crowds, that, that this begins with the crowds, enthusiasm as opposed to reluctance may be the problem that Jesus is confronting. It's enthusiasm. So you're about detachment from enthusiasm. I'm following this person out of enthusiasm. He's the news of the day. So I, I like that as well. So I'm throwing in pretender. I'm throwing in the turning away and the detachment. And I'm throwing in that this may be addressing our enthusiasms. So then, check this out, a decade later, in the same church, the associate pastor, Nicole Pardon Abner, was preaching on this, and you folks may remember this. The altar was brought down front where the table is set for communion, and she piled it with stuff that are delicious and dear. Nothing wrong with any of it. I think it had an NFL jersey on it. I'm making stuff up now. It might have had specific <laughs> kind of food the trinkets of the day, 
a remote control for your television, trophies, just cool stuff that you might love. Uh, for me, it probably would have had CDs or albums on top of it. It just was piled high. Now, you could hear a gasp going up in the, in the, in the congregation because she's piled all this stuff on top of the altar of Christ at the table of Christ. You know, you could go, heresy, <laughs> right? No, but it's all our stuff. And I don't have to get into all the details of the, just the poetry of that work of art that she created by piling that stuff on there because it pulled at my heart. It required a separation. It required – I had to detach myself from that. Even though there were things piled on there I thought were delicious, wonderful, a part of my life. And I, I this is a paraphrase. Uh, she said, uh, I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what other people say I am, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it allowed me to look at this tape with a real decisiveness that Jesus meant it and that that is a, that is a good, clean way of getting clear of things. And, of course, by piling that stuff, shocked. I was shocked, shocking, shocking <laughs> that she would do such a thing. It was a beautiful work of art, and it worked really well. So those are my, my thoughts on this. And let's, uh, let's move forward with the, the next question. And, Bill Hull, this is coming at you. We've got uh, in uh, verses 28 and 29, I'm going to read them again. I want you to focus on the word cost, everybody. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it, will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Bill Hall, what is your view on the use of the word cost in these verses? Uh, yes. Uh, again, uh, repetition. As I noted, uh, cannot be my disciple is three times its cost is at least twice. Um, in, in a sense, to jump back a moment to the end of what I said, about we need to be careful not to soften uh, the message. I, one of the scholars I kind of read, her name is Lynn Japinga. She teaches at Hope College, Holland, Michigan. Uh, this is in the connection resource of our denomination. Uh, one of her opening statements about this passage is, this advice from Jesus is difficult to interpret, even more difficult to preach. <laughs> So uh, an acknowledgement that we we need to be careful that we don't uh, in some way misuse this passage in our desire to reinterpret it. Uh, cost. <clears throat> we remember, of course, Bonhoeffer's concept of the cost of the discipleship. There's free grace and cheap grace, and cheap grace. I think is part of the subject of this <clears throat> passage, Don, that we cheapen grace if we think that if if we forget and won't embrace the the harshness and the challenges that we face. Maybe challenge is a somewhat of a synonym for cost. Um Jesus's metaphor of building a tower or of a king going to war I think is a call to anticipate and weigh the consequences of one's choice. 
that's at the front end. Both of those stories uh, have to do with before you get into something, before you build something, before you engage in war. But that is not the whole story, an analogy. I worked in construction a lot uh, growing up. My father eventually owned his own electrical contracting company. And one thing I quickly discovered, even as a young person, is that if you're doing a renovation, you cannot you cannot anticipate everything you're going to run into, especially with wiring or plumbing. You can't see what is hidden behind a wall until you open that wall. If any of our listeners watch HGTV, there are a lot of renovation programs, and I think sometimes they overdo the drama, but a, a feature of every one of those remodels is, oops, we didn't know this problem was there. And I think this was true for Jesus, his disciples and followers. Jesus knew that Jerusalem, the cross, and the resurrection were in his future. His followers could not and did not owe that they know all that they would face. For example, Peter had to encounter his resistance to embracing Gentiles and that dream of being asked to eat forbidden fruit and Paul's growth and understanding that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. So this passage, John, focuses on, as it were, if you take it literally, I'm, I'm beginning. Do I follow Jesus Christ? Am I willing to anticipate? But we need to remember that there will definitely be surprises and challenges for me. Having grown up in the South in the 50s, where I didn't hear anybody challenge or quite even really talk about segregation, getting into college, getting involved in the study of history and the civil rights movement, I faced a choice. Uh, do I remain loyalty, loyal to the Southern tradition encapsulated in the uh, Jim Crow laws, or does faithfulness to Christ called me to another pathway. And that's relevant to our time. We as Christians in this country, and I think in the world, are engaged in a fierce conflict within and among ourselves over what God is calling us to be and to do is our ultimate loyalty to this country. Uh, and uh, do we follow the Christian nationalism, or is our ultimate loyalty uh, to God? So there is a cost, Don, and I think we're still discovering that cost. Thank you for the question. Thank you. Charles Willard, thoughts on the term cost? You're on mute, but I think I see your, if I'm reading... You're right. It's, uh, you were saying no, or you're no. taking a pass. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And Sarah, I, I was thinking about it in a couple different ways. I, uh, I'm interested. There's a sense that the builder has declared an intent to do something. And I wonder, if, obviously, it's an enterprise where people come along. Uh, there's going to be investment or waste, time, 
you know, it's a, it's an enterprise, and others are involved in this, starting with his vision for what's going to take place. But there's an end game. I, I picture that being articulated to its fullest, which brings people along out of what Bill Wallace talked about for why Jesus may what may be addressing out of enthusiasm. You know, can it be built with enthusiasm? Well, not really. Is enthusiasm a part of it? Maybe, but the plan matters the most. And I also was wondering, what is the tower? I spent a lot of time thinking about the abandonment of it, you know, to state a purpose, to not understand the cost. And it's clearly the builder's responsibility to understand those costs. What is he building? I never think about that very much. What is this tower? What is this idea that he's pursuing? And, and it made me think about the race, walk, the discipline of Jesus' ministry, and what came to mind was Jesus set face on Jerusalem. That was the project. That was the end game. His face was set on Jerusalem. Time passes. His face is set on Jerusalem. He's moving in that direction. There's a cost. There's a cost. There's a cost. He pursues it, and he, he walk and he rides through that gate as well, intent to go inside as he keeps moving towards the cross. Uh, so I, that came to mind as well. And then finally, just to go back to what Bill Wallace said again, that this may be more about enthusiasm addressing that issue than it is the opposite. So what is this enthusiasm that can create such a waste or a mismanagement of dollars? What is, what is the dangers of our enthusiasms? And I'd say, see the early verses on hate, on turning aside from things that don't allow us to pursue and understand it. And what is this tower? Uh, so I'm going to call it the tower of love. Never talk about what he's building. I'm, saying, I'm going to say he's building the tower of love, which can be abandoned because he doesn't assess the cost. So you want a tower of love? No. He doesn't fully assess the cost. Sarah, what are you thinking about that term, cost? Made me think about the second law of thermodynamics. Of course. <laughs> Obviously. My father was a chemical engineer in thermodynamics for something we spoke about. In the second law of thermodynamics, it suggests that energy is never created or destroyed. It, it just moves or is recycled over and over again. And the answer to that is yes and no. Energy cannot be created or destroyed, but it can change from a more useful form to a less useful form. And with that idea, I think that we're presented with that here. Um, in the examples that Jesus gives us, the builder is converting energy into a tower. And he has to determine, does he have enough resources to finish the job? I think sometimes when, in our family, the, the language is, if you come in the house and you become a member of this family, we're in for a penny and in for a pound. So it's not going to be a halfway thing. If a, if a cat walks in the door and we adopt the cat, the cat gets cared for. That means it goes to the vet, it gets its shots. If something happens, like it acquires tetanus, we're in for a pound as well. So um, it, it the, the challenge that we have is that we don't do things halfway in our home. And so I think that's kind of what Jesus is setting up here. 
that you understand the the levity, the the gravity of the particular decision you're making, whether you're building a tower or whether you're um, laying a foundation. And and just like the king considering whether or not we're going to sue for peace versus go to war, the language here is that we're not able to finish it, was not able to finish. He considers whether he is able, and if he cannot then. The language we have to think about is we're not going to be able to divide our energy. It's going to be all or nothing. So I think the word enthusiasm is an interesting play on that. Um, I think that uh, for me, the the way that my brain started to think about it um, was an evaluation of what is needed or what must be surrendered or sacrificed to reach the goal. That's what I think of cost. A logical and pragmatic understanding of the resources that will be consumed or what is needed to reach the outcome, what energy will be offered in exchange for the desired outcome. Um, And if, like that man who finds that priceless pearl, sells all that he has and buys that pearl or buys that plot of land that he finds that that surpasses all other pieces of land. I think that's what we're seeing here. So it's a conversation around how does God fit in your life and is that the pursuit of the thing that you go after all the time? And I think the gospel is something we live into daily, if not minute by minute and hour by hour, and we have to make determination as to what gets priority in our in our heart and our lives and our families. And I think that's what this particular part of this passage talks about, is that there is going to be a cost. You may not notice it. You may have you may have abandoned the cost altogether and are pursuing the thing you love the most, and that may be the right thing. But it could easily be the thing that's not the right thing. And you have to really question... Um, is it uh, is it of God or is it not of God? Um, I guess is my my fallback. So I think that in the pursuit of our the gospel and of following Christ, we have to make those determinations regularly. Thank you. I, let, let me stay with you, Sarah, because you were bridging into the final passages, if we could. So let me let me just, just stick with you and and give everybody the question. The question is, what is the metaphorical power of a delegation set out to ask for the terms of peace? And I'm sticking with you, Sarah, just because you were were bridging it away. So back at you. The the metaphorical power of a delegation. You mean the vulnerable lot that gets sent out in front of the army and – and is there to talk about and negotiate diplomacy um, for the most, the best possible outcome for the whole people in vulnerability? So I think about this, you know, here's this very small army in the center of a very large army, but we're going to send forth a delegation. How often does that delegation come home safe and sound? So, for those who practice the art of maintaining peaceful relationships without the use of violence, 
can help turn conflict into cooperation. I think that's a huge task. I wonder if the diplomat, uh, the diplomat is the, or the presbyter, of course, the elder, is the one that seeks peace when conflict seems the easier answer. Um, and what is to be gained? To stay in relationship is what is to be gained. And I think you have to stay in relationship in Christ. Um, more often than not, uh, when you have two children arguing over, let's say, a ladder truck toy, and one is determined to take it from the other, which would be a show of force, and you don't have a second truck to hand out to the second child, you have to talk about how you become a better friend and let that friend share your truck. I think that's really tricky um, because it is more about relationship and valuing the relationship than it is about valuing the thing, the stuff, the territory, the resource, um, that really pretty castle that you decided you liked. I don't know. So I think the relationship is to what's to be gained. Um, the medical, metaphorical power of delegation um, a place of position of, of vulnerability, asking for terms to stay in relationship. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to comment, and then Charles, I'm going to come to you, and then Bill, I'm going to go to you for uh, for wrap up. Uh, I, this is other parts of the lectionary seem to come together as I age. This one I'm struggling with, and so I asked about the delegation piece, looking for some help. And this is more about why I'm asking for help than having an answer. Is I, I, I'm wondering if we're supposed to focus on with the delegation going out, the absence of enthusiasm. Back to Bill Wallace talking about enthusiasm. The absence of enthusiasm here. The king is capable of putting the enthusiasm aside. After all, it's personal. It's a king. Right? So it's the king, and now thinking about the many. The king, not of one mind the king of a mind of compromise and life, the king in the context of tens of thousands of people. The numbers matter here, I think. It's not like just, just think about a lot of people. It's like, no, these are individual people, and the delegation represents the people. So I'm, I'm wondering if it's to be attached to, and I'm asking you in terms of questions, which it's supposed to be attached to the lack of enthusiasm and the more of the clear thinking. What is the end game? which is, has to do with life and limb and peace, the king. Do kings usually think that way? I think, I think the audience listening is challenged to think, well, that's no king. The king will pursue victory. The king will pursue his dream, hope, success, will pursue victory. What's wrong with this king? Right? But here's tens of thousands of people, and here's a delegation. He is without enthusiasm. Ah, the table is clear. Uh, and then uh, looking at the mind of the king, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it's a call for, for clear thinking, that there is a victory here. The victory is he has put aside his enthusiasm, period. And the delegation represents the new enthusiasm or the enterprise. Or with the tower, you know, it's not an enthusiasm. If the tower is an enthusiasm, you may never get it built. If the tower is an enterprise, it's different. And the enterprise of Christ, here is the king, who's just just a person. Here, this is not a this is not a heavenly king. Is able to put those things aside 
and pursuit. In the case of the tower, the tower of love, here, a world of peace. He is able to pursue those things. Charles Willard, what do you think about uh, this passage and the, the use of the metaphor of the, dele- the king sending the delegation to go out? I've thought about it, and I, I continue to be puzzled. I can't, I can't imagine those circumstances actually existing. I mean, what is it the king? What what is it the king discovered when he found that he only had? I mean, how could he only? How could how could he only then know? So if I try to undo this 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 little narrative that's described here, it 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 doesn't it doesn't hold together. It doesn't seem. And we've been treating it as though that's the way it would normally work. I don't think that it, it would work that way. I mean. The, the 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 king who had a smaller army, he, he knew that. He didn't have to suddenly wake up the day before the battle was supposed to start and say, whoa, I've only got half as many men or fighters as the, as my opposition does. What, what, what am I doing here? What what king would not already have figured that out? So it's, it's, I, I've, I've, I've found myself unable to move beyond the real, what I imagine to be the reality of a circumstance like that. I, it's, it's just, although I'm, I'm guessing that if uh, if we <clears throat> if I were to think about it, I could look all over the 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 world and see where exactly that that's happened. That is, small armies just started out and. But they didn't. They didn't figure it out ahead of time, so they just got demolished. And I just, I just, so I'm not sure where we're left in the text with with, with, with this process. Thank you, Charles. Uh, I'm, I'm excited by what you said. That it's a, it's a, it's a fantastical story. How can this be that somebody would do it? This is transformation. That it's like I, li- I like that. It, you know, well, where's you know, do we, we're Americans, we're compromised. All of a sudden, we're not about compromise anymore in America, you know. You know, he shouldn't be compromising at all. What is this, who is this figure, this fantastic figure that does these things? Bill Hall, you've got last word, my friend. What are your thoughts about <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> last word. Um, I, I will get to the delegation part, but. I find it helpful to remember there's a contrast here. The first example is somebody in charge, in this case, of building a house who figures out on his own whether or not he can afford to do it. The second illustration that gets into delegation is, again, a person in charge, a king. And um, I I hear and honor the, the previous discussion that Charles raised, but taking it literally, it says what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider. So this, this is at the front end of this. And um, it, um, your, your question was uh, what is the metaphorical power to me, this is the second part, the king, is an expression of privilege. 
the home builder had to figure it out for himself. The king <laughs> has the ability to send others rather than have a personal face-to-face encounter with the opponent or enemy, which would put the king in a position of vulnerability. He's delegating to others the risk in this, taking this story literally. You know, how can he be sure that the enemy will not uh, kill the, the ones that are sent? In one of Jesus' parables, that's uh, 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 an element of it. And But it also, to me, again, Don, taking this literally, this parable, if you wish to call it that, reflects the potential value of a third-party arms-length negotiation. This, that can lower the temperature. It's not the king face-to-face with another king. It's representatives of the king, diplomats, if you uh, mean. You know, that's used in today's world. The president doesn't go directly to negotiate in every case, uh, there's there's the use of diplomats. Um, there there's value in that, and particularly again taking it literally, this king is in the inferior position. He only has ten thousand. He's going up against twenty thousand. And there are instances in history where those of lesser capacity prevail because of their strategy or whatever. So it isn't a given that having fewer soldiers, as discomforting as that illustration is, that doesn't mean that you you can't prevail. Um, ultimately, I do not think that delegating is the main focus. I think Jesus is acknowledging what we might today consider common sense, a recognition um that there's value in others being involved in finding a way through this. There, there is that potential. And it occurred to me that as this is true for any of us, but as a pastor, I was often that third party. I was someone, let's say a couple comes for marital counseling. I care about both of them. I'm in each of their corners. I'm in the, the marriage corner. Uh, that doesn't presume that the marriage has to be healed, but there was at least potential value in not being encased in that um, relationship, but being uh, someone who might help them find a way through. Uh, one of the mantras in systems, family therapy, and in the recovery movement, back to the issue of how do you deal with people who are part of your family or your circle of friends with whom you previously shared that addiction to drugs or alcohol, but now you're seeking another way. And the counsel is to remain connected but not enmeshed. Uh, Not enmeshed which means you're, you're captured by that relationship, which I think relates to this hating father and mother. Um, it is possible to stay connected but not be enmeshed. Um, 
Again, I think the overall purpose of this passage is to get us, and I like your repeated emphasis on the issue of enthusiasm. (laughs) Enthusiasm will only carry us so far. And again, I think it's relevant today that those who claim to be people of faith keep asking themselves, if my ultimate loyalty is to God and for us as Christians, as represented in the person of Jesus Christ, how do I live my life? What leaders do I vote for? What priorities do I want them to have? What priorities are there in my life? And it doesn't have to be as dramatic as going to war. It can be, do I spend time listening to the person in my presence who is hurting, or do I scurry on? It it can be that simple. Again, a difficult passage. We have only just begun, John. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, everybody. And for those listening in, Palmas here Presbyterian Church is at 3501 West San Jose Street. That's in Tampa, Florida. And for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We always commend that site to you. Opportunities to take communion, great sermons, uh, disagreements, debates, uh, reflections, prayers, and outstanding music. So check that out. You're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.